University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. You all are welcome for having David Bowie stuck in your head the rest of the day. And for the next eight weeks of this new series we're beginning, it never ceases to amaze me how quickly the world is changing, how quickly time flies. It seems like yesterday was the 1980s and I was holding in my possession Lion-O's sword of omen, a cabbage patch doll in the other hand, a neon or hot pink slap bracelet on my wrist, a WWF thumb war wrestler on my finger, and I was playing an Atari game system. I'm embarrassed to confess to you, at some point my mother had the brilliant idea of giving all of us boys perms. Um, and, and why not, uh, when Bon Jovi and Richard Marks and Lionel Richie and every other hair band were doing it, and yes, that is not me up there, because I would never put a picture of me with a perm on the big screen for all of you to snap a picture. That's my middle brother, Aaron. And yet for some reason, as I... Uh, walked up here this morning with acid-washed jeans or Reebok pump shoes or a neon blue Nike shirt and big poofy perm hair, y'all would not receive this conversation because times change, things change. The culture of my childhood faded when Nirvana brought grunge music from the Northwest to every Walkman and television. Jinko jeans replaced acid-washed jeans. Tickle Me Elmo killed the Cabbage Patch doll kids and PlayStation stepped over the decrepit remains of my Atari game system. Courtney Love killed Kurt Cobain, making boy bands come into the late 90s and early 2000s, and all of a sudden my Discman skipped its way into replacing itself with this thing called the iPod. Times change. How quickly our world changes. There's been more medical advancements in the last five years than my entire lifetime. There have been more opportunities for work and love and education and economics and connectivity and philosophy and religion and politics, and the list goes on and on and on. The opportunities are endless and open, and the freedom within those opportunities are endless. We live in the most highly advanced, most highly educated, most highly aware society that's ever walked the face of the earth. And as these rapids change come, there is tremendous shift that has gone unnoticed. We are living in a post-church world. I do not make that statement to bludgeon our noses. The hard reality is that for the last 1,600 years, we have lived in Christendom, in which the Christian religion was the centerpiece of society, and this is no longer the case. Most church historians agree that Christendom began in the year of the Edict of Milan, which was 313, when the Roman Emperor Constantine gave endorsement to Christianity, and that moment when Western culture was infused and shaped by the church. Today, however, Christianity can no longer claim any dominance within the population. We live in a religious plurality in a a complete and competing worldviews. According to a recent study, between 6,000 to 10,000 churches in the U.S. are dying each year. 
That's a rate of 100 to 200 churches per week. And this is met with the decline of those who identify themselves as Christian, 78.4% in 2007 to 70.6% in 2014. Let those facts settle in for just a second. And yet at the same time, we live in this strange paradox because spirituality has never been higher in America. This is a multi-billion dollar industry with books and apps and videos and retreat centers and gurus and fitness classes and group therapy sessions. However, the more spiritual are divorcing the church and never looking back. Many churches are stuck at this crossroads between what once was and what is yet to be. Embracing this reality can often lead to fear and anxiety and disillusion. And all such things can cause us to live out of a scarcity. Yet we serve a God of the universe and follow the one who is transforming this world into something new. So instead of working out of a scarcity, we should be working out of an abundance. There are a few positives here. First, we must remember that the church has experienced this before, in the first couple hundred years of our existence. The second thing is, the Spirit of God is leading us out of our apathetic and entitled perspectives to actually discern what creative and innovative ways we can re-engage the world around us with authentic and relevant expressions of God's love. I say apathetic and entitled because that is exactly what Christendom was. It was the assumption that everyone knew Jesus, was part of a church, and we had the favor within the culture. We haven't had to act because we assumed this actually worked and this would last. Yet the Spirit of God is moving, calling us into something new. And to help us navigate this conversation, we're going to engage the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, verse 1. And if you're thinking, yes, you're right, Nehemiah looks like one of those really boring names that's in all the genealogies listed within the scripture. You know, all those pointless genealogy names, you're like, why do I need to know all 200 of these people who begat somebody else? So a little context. In 722 BCE, the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians. Ten tribes of Israel that represented the kingdom were, were scattered, never to really be known again. And while the southern kingdom of Judah uh, rebutted Assyria, it would eventually fall to the Babylonians in 597 BCE. That year, King Jehoiakim was dethroned, and in 587, the Babylonians came with brute force. They destroyed Jerusalem, they decimated the temple. It was estimated that six to 10,000 people were carried off into exile, leaving a small remnant behind. If you recall from a couple weeks ago, we learned that the Babylonian Empire was short-lived because in October of 539 B.C., the Persian king Cyrus took Babylon, establishing an empire that is known to modern-day Iraq and Iran and Syria and Lebanon and uh, in Turkey and parts of Greece. And somewhere in the year of 538, Cyrus made a decree allowing some of the Hebrews to return back to their homeland. And over a period of about 90 years, there would be attempts to, uh, to rebuild the city. In 515 BCE, the reconstruction of the temple was led by a man named Ezra. And yet Jerusalem would lay vulnerable for nearly 70 years. 
It's in this time that a great religious revival took place, and the book of Nehemiah records the rebuilding of Jerusalem's gates and its walls. This is a quite remarkable book because it's people coming back to what once was. It's people trying to find a new way of living amongst what they thought they knew. It's a book about chaos and destruction and military threat and drama. It's a narrative that centers on mourning and coming to terms with reality and stepping out in courage to discover something new that God is doing. So let's encounter this text in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the, mouth, uh, in the month of Kislev, in the twelfth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some of the other men and questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. The context of Nehemiah matters. In fact, the author wants us to know specifically what place and time is taking place. It's the equivalent of a time period of November or December in the 20th year of reign of Artaxerxes. One day, Nehemiah is visited by his brothers, and you can kind of get the sense that they're kind of shooting the breeze, and Nehemiah just asked this question How are things in Jerusalem? (laughs) Like we all would. Except the news that he's met with is complete devastation and it drives Nehemiah to a point of lamenting for Jerusalem and her people. And you might be thinking, okay, it's just a city. What's the big deal? Many of us, most of us I would argue, have places that mean a great deal to us. Right down the road there is a great monolith that holds 102,000 people on a Saturday an additional 50,000 people who will wait outside of the stadium just to tailgate because they want to get inside. And yes, I know somebody's going to email me tomorrow with the specific number of 102,000-something of people that fit in Tiger Stadium. Around the world, the Eiffel Tower, the, the Statue of Liberty, the Roman Colosseum, the Opera House in Sydney, Times Square, the Golden Gate Bridge, on and on, these are places that mean a great deal to us. Think of a place of great significance for you. I proposed to Jennifer at the Wishing Well next to Cinderella's Castle in Disney World. That is a great, meaningful place to us. Yes, somewhere in the deep corner of my soul, there is a romantic at heart. And for all the extraordinary structures around the world, there's even more extraordinary places that mean something to us. These are spots that represent love and creativity and freedom and remembrance and hope. Now imagine those places being utterly destroyed. That's Jerusalem. It's a city that meant so much to the Jewish people. It meant so much. It was the chief location of their faith, the very temple where it was said that the presence of God dwelled. Jerusalem was a city of hope and promise and faith and and future in the people of God. And yet the city was in ruins. No progress to be made of restoring it to its former glory. I can't even begin to imagine what Nehemiah is dealing with in this moment. Because in hearing this news, the people are reliving what happened to them. 
Imagine your entire country's infrastructure being decimated by an an invading army that, that murders thousands, that ravages the wives and daughters of Judah, and ripped large chunks of population away to a distant land. Jerusalem lays in ruins, a reminder of what had happened to them, and for this it says that Nehemiah wept. And he didn't just shed tears. Nehemiah confesses that he wept and mourned for days. We've stated plainly that the world is changing, but outside of the post-church world we live in, what does that even mean? By 2025, experts say that there will be 8 billion people on earth. And while we live in comfort, there are so many who face the scarcity of, of food and power and clean water and rare metals. Urbanization is driving drastic climate change, shifting our landscape and altering our environment. Infectious disease is not a thing of the past. Basic health care would save millions each year in 2019, and yet we continue to see humanitarian crisis after humanitarian crisis. The ongoing devastation in Syria, which has taken the lives of over half a million people and has displaced 6.3 million people. The war in Yemen, which has seen tens of thousands killed and die of starvation, 24 million people facing disease and clean water scarcity, a lack of shelter and senseless violence. And lest we not forget the murdering of thousands of Muslims in Myanmar, said to be, quote, ethnic cleansing. And with such devastation and tragedy in our world, maybe the wail and cry of Nehemiah is not this thing of the past, but something that should be coming, rushing up into our reality. And as we consider the loss of life, not just in our country, but around the world, I wonder if its impact registers within our minds and our souls. Do we lament for a broken and hurting world? Sure, we're disturbed by the images that we see on the news. We, we certainly are horrified by the various stories that are passed along social media. We become indignant by the meaningless loss of life by the hands of fanatics. But then what? What happens when the weeks pass after another mass shooting? What happens when the reality of what we hear of a greater loss of life outside the United States? All these questions raise more important questions within our hearts to consider, what do we do with all of this? Do we care for our fellow human beings? Where is God in all of this? Eli Weissel, the Holocaust survivor and writer, once said, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, It's indifference. The opposite of life is not death. It's indifference. Are we indifferent to a hurting and broken world? Do we mourn like Nehemiah? We're reminded from the scriptures of Jesus, the one we are called to follow. Jesus lived a life of compassion. The gospel, time and time again, tells us that when Jesus saw people who were hurting and broken, he had a compassion that came from the very depths of his soul. And this wasn't just some sort of fleeting tear or a temporary gasp of pain of facing difficulty. We learn that Jesus 
chose to take his mourning and lament and put it into action. He healed the wounds. He mended the brokenness. He brought transformational compassion into the dark places of souls that were lost and stood against the social constructs that perpetuated the hurt and brokenness of the people of his day. So as we consider the parkland Floridas, the the war uh, and famine in Yemen, the Zion city conflicts within our own zip code, do we respond as Jesus responded? When we consider just the physical manifestation causing human brokenness, we also should consider the social and relational and emotional and spiritual instruments causing great devastation to our world, to our families, to our lives. Do we see human brokenness and hurting on a deep spiritual level? And are we willing to lament like Nehemiah? More importantly, are we willing to live a life of compassionate action like Jesus? The world is not okay. So what's our response? Let's pick up in verse 4. It says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who he loves him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my family, father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exile people at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as the dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by the great strength in your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was the cupbearer of the king. The first thing we should take away from this text is Nehemiah's response to the news. He didn't turn to complaining and mourning. He did not resolve himself to nothing, to apathy. His response was to pray. And his prayer was remarkable. It wasn't a simple one-liner, God heal the world, God give peace to the world. It was an intentional and powerful and engaging prayer. He confesses the Hebrew people failed, that they were the very cause of the reason they were in exile. He begs God to forgive them of their sins. He first turns his uncertainty for Jerusalem into the certainty of God. In the face of chaos, Nehemiah turns to God's steadfastness. Nehemiah doesn't have to remind God of who God is and what God promised. This is a prayer of reassurance to himself that God is a God of love and presence and fulfilled promises. He then doesn't blame God for this happening. He understands it's their problem. They caused this to happen. 
This is a prayer of recognition and repentance for why Nehemiah and his people wound up in exile in the first place. You see, God had sent prophet and messenger after generation after generation to warn the people that their politics and their economic and their social and religious corruption would come back and bite them. The prophets exposed their willingness to turn a blind eye to the rich taking advantage of the poor. The religious system that was spiritually abusing the people, the society that just looked past the marginalized, Nehemiah recognized they were to blame. And after this prayer of repentance, he turns asking God for strength and courage to act. He recognized the tremendous significance of Jerusalem's decimation, that the people were vulnerable. He recognized that he did not possess what was necessary to fix all of the problems in Jerusalem. And the chapter concludes by stating his vocation as the cupbearer of the king. We'll gravitate to this next week. And so when Nehemiah is faced with the grief of great devastation, he didn't turn to complaining and worry. He didn't turn to apathy and indifference. His response was prayer. And for us, I wonder, how do we pray in the face of such calamity? What an intimidating thought to bring a word of repentance and confession and request to Almighty God. When we compound this thought with the magnitude of the calamity we see in this world, it can be unsettling to know even where to begin in a word of prayer. I mean, where do you begin when hundreds of thousands have died in a Syrian conflict? When families continue to be torn apart by the opioid addiction in our country? When children in our own town continue to face poor education resources and healthy food scarcity? Where do I even begin to pray for my neighbor who might have just lost his wife of 50 years? How do I talk to God about the clinical depression that is crippling my best friend? All these questions we consider, how do we pray to an unseen God about very real broken hurting in our world, in our community? I mean, what, what do we have to say to God that God doesn't already know? What do we need to intercede to God that God isn't already aware of? What if the answers to these very difficult questions are in the text? You see, looking back, Nehemiah's prayer was simplistically profound. He wasn't necessarily praying for the answers or the preconceptions of what was next. Instead, Nehemiah begins his prayer with what he did know, and what he did know was that God was great and powerful. God is full of compassion and wisdom. What if we begin our prayer with what we did know, instead of what we didn't know? If even taking one step, if we pray to God with our deep and difficult questions, the yearnings of our heart and the aching of our soul, Nehemiah's prayer was not perfectly penned theological statement with all the right terms in all the right places. I imagine the first prayer that Nehemiah had had a lot of ums and buts and questions and pauses. What we see in Nehemiah is a desperation an airing of his thoughts of the calamity that's raging within his soul. It wasn't perfect, but it was something. What if our response to the brokenness and hurting of our world was to pray an imperfect prayer? As the great reformer Martin Luther put it, I have so much things I have to do, 
that I shall begin with three hours of prayer today. Nehemiah's prayer was a confession for the people of his apathy and indifference towards their culture, their politics, their religious corruption that dismantled Israel. What a prayer of confession we must bring to God. For confession, we discover humility. It is in humility that we truly receive the mercy and grace of God. It is in the mercy and grace of God that we are bolstered to see a world beyond our little kingdoms, our privileged circumstances, so that we might see the plight of our neighbors, of our community, and of the world. It's in seeing the world that we truly see through God's eyes, the dream God has for this world. As Soren Kierkegaard wrote, the function of prayer is not to influence God, but rather change the nature of the one who prays. Nehemiah wanted to make a difference in the world. Nehemiah didn't give up the burden of his people's distress. Instead, he prayed about it until he too became distressed. He prayed until he couldn't ask God to act. He prayed for God to help him act. When we pray, might we pray that God would cause us to act? The Spirit of God is moving, inviting us to discern what creative and innovative ways we can reimagine the world around us in authentic and relevant expressions of God's love. The great Desmond Tutu reminds us of God's dream in his book, God's dream. And it reads, the pages stick together. My children have clearly been playing with this book. Dear children of God, what do you dream about in your loveliest of dreams? Do you dream about flying high or rainbows reaching across the sky? Do you dream about being free to do what your heart desires? Or about being treated like a full person, no matter how young or old you might be. Do you know what God dreams about? If you close your eyes and you look in your heart, I'm sure, dear child, that you will find out. God dreams about people sharing. God dreams about people caring. God dreams that we reach out and hold one another's hand and play one another's games and laugh with one another's hearts. But God does not force us to be friends or to love one another. Dear child of God, it does happen that we get angry and hurt one another. Soon we start to feel sad and so very alone. Sometimes we cry and God cries with us. But when we say we're sorry and forgive one another, we wipe away our tears and God's tears too. Each of us carries a piece of God's heart within us. And when we love one another, the piece of God's heart are made whole. God dreams that every one of us will see that we are all brothers and sisters, yes, even you and me, even if we have different mommies and daddies or live in different faraway lands even if we speak different languages or have different ways of talking to God, even if we have different eyes or different skin, even if you are taller and I am smaller, even if your nose is little and mine is large, dear child of God, do you know how to make God's dream come true? It's really quite easy. It's as easy as sharing, loving, and caring, as easy as holding and playing and laughing, as easy as knowing we are all family because we are all God's children. 
Will you help God's dream come true? Let me tell you a secret. When you do, God smiles like a rainbow.